0: Have you heard that song before? No. I think that's one of Cash's best songs, "The Man in White." He actually wrote a book about the Apostle Paul, apparently called "Man in White." So, I thought, I just thought, man, this is such a great song. We need to listen to this as a congregation. So I think we'll probably get the award, the Creativity 2010 Award for incorporating Johnny Cash music into our Messianic Jewish liturgy. That has to be a first, hey? They usually play me- Johnny Cash at synagogue, but we're on the cutting edge here. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, let's, let's look at, in case you're wondering, I won't go for an hour today. All right? <laughs> so, uh, let's, look, let's look at Acts, the, the uh, book of Acts here together first. Uh, Acts 8. I just wanted to point out a couple things that really jumped out at me. One of the We've been talking about some of the hallmark dynamics and experiences of the early Yeshua movement. Those, those first messianic communities in the land of Israel. And uh, one of them that continues to jump out in this, these chapters is the experience of the Ruach HaKodesh. The experience of the spirit of holiness is what it literally is in Hebrew. The Holy Spirit. Uh, we, we, we saw that Stephen was a man who was full of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we see that Shimon Kipha, Simon Peter in Acts 3, when he responded to these men who were convicted and realized that they, they needed something more. And they said, what do we do? And he said, well, well, well repent and believe and, and you will receive this gift. So we see it right there. And uh, that comes through loud and clear in uh, these chapters also. In Acts chapter 8, it talks about the, uh, the Shomronim, the Samaritans. And uh, how the Holy Spirit falls on them After they come to faith And are immersed in the Master's name And then after Yeshua's emissaries come down from Jerusalem And pray for them and lay their, lay their hands on them uh, Also in, in Acts 9.17 When, uh, when Hananiah, when Ananias comes to Brother Saul He uh, doesn't just say, I've come to lay my hands on you So that you'll receive your sight He says, so that you'll receive your sight And what? Nine seventeen, Regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So there was, there was this realization in the early Yeshua movement that faith in Yeshua equaled being filled, being filled with the Ruach HaKodesh. Uh, I, I, I get the impression that it was a feeling that they, they had never experienced before on that level. It was an experience that nev- they never had before. And uh, it was a big deal to them. And uh, that tells me that it continues to be a big deal today in our new covenant faith, that, that being filled with the Holy Spirit. And uh, I remember when I was, I think it's when I was 16 years old, I realized, you know why I've heard teaching about the Holy Spirit, but I feel like there's more to the Holy Spirit than what I have ever experienced in my life. And I wanted to understand it for myself. I, I'd heard the idea that, you know, when you receive the holy you receive the Holy Spirit when you come to faith, and that's all there is, that's what you get. And uh, there's no more for you. I, I heard the uh, opinion that you know, there's, a, there's a baptism of the Holy Spirit to be experienced subsequent to coming to faith at some point. I heard the idea that there's a, there's a, there, there are many times that you can be filled with the Holy Spirit. So I, I went on a real quest to understand this for myself in my mid-teens. And uh, this, was, this was one of the passages that did jump out at me. It talks about the Samaritans. And it says that they came to faith in Yeshua... And they were immersed in his name, so they were bona fide believers. And yet, there was this, there was this greater experience of God's spirit that they had yet to have experienced. And it wasn't until Messiah's emissaries came down and laid their hands on them, and prayed for them, that they that they uh, that they received this this filling. And I don't know. Did they have the Holy Spirit before that? I'm sure they did. Um, you know, Yeshua's, uh, Yeshua's disciples on Shavuot, when, when the Ruach HaKodesh fell on them, and, and there, were, there was uh, burning flames of fire over their heads and everything. I mean, yes, they were they were filled to overflowing at that point. But did they have the Spirit before that? I, I think they probably did. Uh, at the end of the book of John, Yeshua breathes on them, and he does say, receive the Holy Spirit. So I assume they received the Holy Spirit at that point at the very at the very latest So uh, what I get out of that You know, this is my understanding Is that Even after coming to faith in Messiah Even after being immersed in His name Even after coming to a point of Torah observance There still remains For many of us Maybe even for me I think for me A, a greater experience of the Ruach HaKodesh Than what we have yet experienced And uh, I think this can be for us as individuals. I think it can be for us as a movement also. And that excites me. It tells me that we haven't arrived yet. That, that there's, there's a, we're still on the journey. We're following Yeshua. And He's going to take us into, into greater things. I know I look forward to that in my own life. So that's something that jumps out there. Uh, there there's a, an interesting movement in the last hundred years in the academic world uh, Suggesting that different books of the New Testament, perhaps even the whole New Testament, was not in fact originally written in Greek, but written in a Semitic language like Aramaic and or Hebrew. And uh, there are quite a few scholars at this point who are are of that opinion. Their number is growing. They have some pretty strong evidence for it. Uh, Even if you read the early church fathers, uh, all the way from from Papias and Origen and uh, Clement and... uh, Epiphanius and Eusebius, uh, a lot of these big names, the early, early historians, uh, their opinion is they would say that different books, including Matthew, uh, Paul's letters, um, John, Acts, Revelation, um, many of these books were originally written in Hebrew. And um, there, there are lots of interesting examples of that, but one of them is quite often in the, in the Greek texts that we have, in the West of the New Testament, they have what you call Semitisms or Hebraisms popping through. They're these these little expressions or idioms that you just don't find in Greek, in classical Greek literature, but that are abundant in uh, rabbinic literature, in Jewish sources, and in the Hebrew language. And uh, I'll just give you a, a little example today in Acts 8.35. There are literally hundreds of these. This is one. It says, Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Yeshua to him and Now, this, this phrase And he opened his mouth and began to preach This, this is a classic Hebraism This is something you say in Hebrew Vaif uh, piv And then etc uh, Is how it would be in Hebrew And it's just, it's just one example of hundreds um, You know, as as I'm doing the work on um, the Hebrew course that's going to be produced under the Holy Language banner, I'll I'll highlight a lot of these. I'll go into some of those specific quotes from the early church fathers. That's something that I've been working intensively on on in this last week. A lot of people have like a 9 to 5 work day. I have like a 7 to 6 work day generally. So I've really been immersing myself in this last week in some of these early texts in these Hebraisms. So I just wanted to share that one with you as a little... A little tip of the iceberg and uh, you can look forward to many more of those when we get the Hebrew chorus out (laughs) yeah Uh, in Acts 9 2 this really jumps out too uh, we find what the early believers were called there was a special name for them they were called the way if you found any belonging to the way that's cool do you belong to the way I belong to the way yeah I, I express my faith in the context of the way um, this is actually this is a very eastern concept in Middle Eastern um, and in the east there's a way of doing things there's a, there's a way of living your life and it's not just like a little formula that you incorporate into a couple hours of your your, your week. Uh, it's not just something that you do, let's say, for an hour or two on Sunday morning or Saturday morning or whatever. Uh, the, in the Eastern concept, there's a way of doing it your life, and it encompasses your whole life. It encompasses... Everything, uh, Your thought patterns, how you, how you make decisions, uh, your attitude. And uh, we, we, we see this, this more uh, Eastern, this Eastern concept here. The believers, they, they belong to the way. What that means is they saw their faith in Mashiach as affecting every area of their lives. It was a way that they did their lives. And uh, what I really love about this is that this is also a title of Yeshua's, isn't it? In, uh, in Yohanan, John chapter 14, he says, I am the way. Ani or Anochi haDerech. I like that because it tells me that the way of doing life—it's not just a book to be read and uh, lived by. It's not just a formula to uh, or a creed. It's not something impersonal. The way is very personal. The way is a man. His name is Yeshua. Uh, we belong to the way, who is a man named Yeshua, and I, I really love that. I have to check one thing here. Great. So, um, yeah. I belong to the way. I'm following the way. Uh, Something else that really jumped out at me in Acts 9.3, Yeshua confronts Shaul. He has a head-on collision with him. And uh, Shaul walks away blind from this occurrence after being floored and the men who are with him. And uh, it's interesting because, like... Saul wasn't actually persecuting Yeshua in person, or he didn't think he was. He was persecuting these people who were his disciples. And yet, what, what does the Master say? He says, why are you persecuting me? Why are you doing this to me? And that, 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 that tells me so much about Yeshua's relationship to his body, his relationship to us as his people. It, it tells me that he identifies so closely with you that when someone speaks against you, he takes that personally. Personally. You know, if someone attacks you, if someone attacks the body of Messiah on planet Earth, he takes that very personally. And uh, I, for me, anyway, that's a, that's a challenge also, not only to, to get those warm fuzzies from knowing that Yeshua and I, were like this, but also to remember that the body of Messiah is something very close to his heart. Uh, it's something that I want to be careful to relate to properly, because that's how I'm relating to him, eh? So, you know, maybe there's some parts of the body that don't have the same understanding as us. That aren't doing some of the same stuff as we're doing. But we want to be careful in how we talk about them. Because that's Yeshua we're talking about. right? Um, uh, Yaakov, James, talked about that too. He said, you know, be careful not to speak evil of a brother. Don't speak against a brother or sister. Why? Because when you do that, you're speaking against the Torah and you're judging the Torah. It's like you're speaking against the Master when you speak against His Bride. Or did you notice that, you know, men, um, you know, they have their brides and they just, they think, they think the world of their brides. Like, you know, Colin, for instance, he's not here. I'll use him as an example. Colin thinks the world of Hannah, right? He thinks Hannah is gorgeous. And even, even like 70 years from now, when they're, they're in their 90s. And maybe Hannah's going to be looking a little older than, Colin is still going to think that she's the most beautiful woman in the world, and you know what? That's the way Yeshua sees His bride. You know what? Maybe we're not perfect yet. Maybe we have some, some problems, right? Maybe we're still like, going through that beautification process that the, the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, is taking us through. But you know what? It doesn't matter. When Yeshua looks at His bride, He thinks the world of her. He thinks she's absolutely gorgeous, right? And so when we look at the body of Christ, you know what? Even though we've got some real problems going on here still, it's going to be okay. So that's, that's something that He's been speaking to me about in terms of my outlook and uh, the way I relate to the greater body Messiah. I think that applies to us as a Messianic Jewish community in general. Um, An interesting little practical note here. In Judaism, Jewish people typically don't kneel when they pray. But, a couple thousand years ago, in the Second Temple era, Jewish people did kneel when they prayed. Uh, It was only when this habit of kneeling in prayer became one of those hallmarks of the early Yeshua movement that the Jewish people kind of uh, let that drop from their liturgical expressions. There, there is a time or two in the year in the liturgy when Jewish people will kneel in prayer, but not generally. But something that jumps out over and over again in the book of Acts is that the early believers would get on their knees when they prayed. Uh, Acts 8 verse 40 is an example. I'll read it for you. It says, uh, Philip, oh, it's not 840. Maybe it's 940. That's better. Acts 940. Uh, it says, Kepha sent them all out and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, uh, Tavita, arise. And she opened her eyes and when she saw Kepha, she sat up. So you just, you just see this. This was in a normal part of their lives. And I, I don't know about you. Have you ever had a moment where maybe, maybe you were in personal prayer time um, and you know, outdoors or in your room or wherever, and you just felt that that awe of His presence, and you just felt that prompting to get on your knees. You know, I uh, I, I, I highly recommend just uh, getting on one's knees in prayer. Um, sometimes, sometimes I think in the you know sometimes in the West we like to. Uh, depending on the tradition we're from, we're not as physically expressive in prayer or worship. But, you know, you see in ancient Israel and in the lives of the early believers that uh, prayer for them wasn't only a verbal expression, it was also a physical expression, such as getting on one's knees. And, you know, I don't know, maybe sometimes we're like, I don't want to get on my knees. I mean, the floor is hard, right? Or, I don't know, it's going to get my pants dirty. But maybe that's the point, you know? getting, Getting on a hard floor and get in the pants a little dirty or something it's, it's a good it's a good act of humility I, I know that really that really struck me a couple of years ago and I realized man I never kneel when I pray but all over the place in the book of Acts I see the, the believers kneeling in prayer so I've been I've been trying to get into that habit more it's kind of hard when like you're playing piano in congregation or something you know it just doesn't work the same but <laughs> yeah well let's look at the parsa together if you want to flip with me to the book of Devarim uh, Deuteronomy and we'll, uh, we'll do some exploration here. I'm just going to take you through chapter by chapter and draw out a couple of highlights that hopefully we'll find uh, applicable to our lives and um, will, will get us thinking and learning. In uh, Deuteronomy 12.1, he says, These are the laws and the judgments which you shall carefully observe in the land, which Yahweh, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess as long as you live on the earth. Now, this is a a classic example of a verse that could be taken in the wrong way or taken out of context. Did you you see here, he says, These are the laws and judgments which you are to carefully observe in the land. Therefore, you could infer, if you don't live in the land of Israel, the Torah doesn't apply to you. Uh, The law of God is uh, irrelevant. You you could actually draw that conclusion based on this verse, couldn't you? And... uh, there are examples in early church history of some of the church fathers who did draw that conclusion. An example I was just reading about this last week was Epiphanius. He was an early Roman Catholic historian from the 300s. Uh, he wrote a book called Panarion, which means medicine chest. And in it, he basically, he basically lined up every heresy and every sect that he could see that didn't belong to the, the only true church, Constantine's New Roman Catholic Church And he just lambasted them And one of them That he attacked Was the sect of the Nazarenes They were this Jewish sect That it was still around Three, four hundred years After Yeshua uh, They were the literal descendants Of Yeshua's brothers Like, uh, you know He had brothers, right? And they were married And they had children um, And uh, the early believers, Jewish believers They were the literal descendants And, uh Epiphanius didn't have too much too much good to say about them. He said they're basically just like they're basically just like all the other Jewish people like Orthodox Jews except that they believe in Yeshua. You know, they continue to practice the Torah they assemble on Shabbat they circumcise their sons uh, they read, they read the, uh, the Tanakh the Hebrew Bible in Hebrew. So this is, this is a very valuable historical reference telling us that what, what did the early church really look like here? Anyway, um one of the things that Epiphanius goes on to say in the next chapter is, These guys are all under a curse. Because it says in the Torah, Cursed is the one who doesn't fulfill all of these words. And it says in Deuteronomy 16 that you're to go up to Jerusalem three times a year. And these Nazarenes are trying to do the Torah, But they're not going to do up to Jerusalem three times a year because they can't, So they're cursed. That was Epiphanius' conclusion. So you see, you know, there is a temptation to think this way. I, I believe that he was totally off base. And I, I think that was extremely irrational, his conclusion on that matter. But you know, I, 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 get, I get a principle out of this, okay? I'm going like to give you a, a, a contraction of words. Do what you can. That's the principle that I get from this. Do what you can. Do what you can. You can kind of make it one word, right? So what's an example? Uh, the father said, Celebrate Pesach, Passover. And you know... Um, Eat the lamb. But don't do it anywhere. Don't do it in your backyard. Only do it at the temple in Jerusalem. We read that in Deuteronomy 16. So, you know, we could say, well, you know what? We can't, we can't go to Jerusalem for this thing. We can't, we can't do the actual lamb. So what's the point of doing it at all? I guess Passover isn't for us while we're in the exile. You know, that, that's the conclusion that we could draw. But that's incorrect. See, what we do is we say, Father, we love your word. We, uh, we want to do as much of it as we can. So, do what you can. And of course, our righteousness isn't constituted in our observance of His Word either. I mean, our righteousness is based on the finished work of Messiah, you know, that we are justified through Him. So, doing Torah is an expression, I believe, of that internal righteousness. But it's not like if I don't make it up to Jerusalem three times a year, my righteousness is diminished in the eyes of God. Um, So, you know, and that applies in lots of things. Here's another one, Tzitzit. Now, technically it says, wear these on the four corners of the garment with which you cover yourself. Now, uh, most of us today don't wear big poncho things anymore, do we? So it's, it's a little hard, actually. Um, you know one of the one of the traditional applications of this is to have a special garment a tallit that the Jewish male will wear in prayer but you don't really wear that around on a regular basis I mean that isn't a functional garment it's more like a holy special one right so I mean that's that's one traditional way the Jewish people have applied that but you know I think that's another example of you do what you can okay so you can't wear them on the four corners of your garment but does that mean you don't wear them all? Well, you do what you can, right? So, I just wear mine like this. Um, You know, it says, wear the tzitzit so you can see them. Some people can't do that. Maybe they live in areas where there's a very high level of Uh, anti-Semitism. Maybe their employer doesn't want them walking around with strings hanging out of their out of their clothes or something, you know. Um, so you do what you can. You, you tuck them in would be an example. You wear them on a talit gitan, a garment that you can tuck under your shirt. Uh, that, that would be another example. And there are lots of them. You know, um, here, maybe, maybe tefillin would be another example. You know, we had our, we had our live phylacteries demo last week, right? Maybe, maybe someone has a big family and they're just struggling to pay the bills and they say, you know what, I, these are a couple hundred dollars at least. I just can't afford these right now. So what's the conclusion? Do you say, well, I just I'm not going to do this at all. Well, maybe you just do what you can. You know, you can write out some scripture passages, like make a little cardboard box and and just tie them on. You know, I mean, you could you could do something like that for two bucks, I, you know, or, or even less. I, I'm just giving some examples of this this uh, this approach to the Torah, where uh, where we take the word and we say, okay, maybe I can't do this tra- the traditional way. Maybe I can't fully do this mitzvah, but what can I do? I'm going to do as much as I can. So these are examples, and you know, I'm guessing, I can't say for sure, but I'm guessing that this pleases the Father's heart. I'm I'm guessing that this is something that he really likes, you know, that that attitude, and I want to grow in that attitude. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 2 to 4, and then also 12, 29 to 31, it talks about all of these ways in which the nations serve their gods. And uh, the conclusion in 12.4 is Don't act like this toward Yahweh, your God So there's this, there's this clear instruction You know, if there's a nation and they're serving their God in this way Don't do it that way Right? And uh, to, to, to understand this on a broader level I want to explain something that I see um, Just like the people of Israel, the armies of Israel Went into Canaan to inherit that land under Joshua I believe that we are an army that Messiah has sent out from the land of Israel. The gospel has been sent out from Canaan, right, from Israel, to the nations. And so I almost see that, just like the people of Israel had a mission to go in and take the land, we have a mission to go out and take the planet for Messiah. With, uh, with the good news of his salvation, with the power of his spirit, uh, with the, armed with the truth that he has given us uh, that's our mission I mean you know the only other option is to say man bummer we're not in Israel I guess we should just hunker down and wait till he comes and gets us you know and hopefully we'll survive this thing no I mean we're we're like we are not on the defense we are on the offensive here while we're out amongst the nations and uh, when you look at it that way a lot of the commandments about for the people of Israel going into Canaan and taking the place also apply to us as disciples of Yeshua going out into all the world and taking the world for him and uh, in that regard, I think this is this is a very clear injunction that's very applicable as as we go out into the nations and as we bring as we make disciples of all of the peoples, don't get sucked into worshiping Yahweh the way they the way they worship their gods. There there are some clear cut lines here, right? He has given us a way to worship Him, and uh, it's predominantly expressed in the Torah, which is why it's kind of unfortunate when we theologically cut the Torah, out of our Bibles, because it leaves us with a lot of gray area with regards to how he likes to be worshipped, so I understand it. Anyway, I, I, I read these passages and I think, oh man, you know, as the body of Messiah, we've done the opposite historically. You know, when you read church history, it's, it's the story of how a, a movement, the Yeshua movement, fell away from its roots, forgot a very significant element of its... its it's leader, Yeshua, and ended up syncretizing a lot of stuff from the nations. It became a real amalgamation. You know, by by the 300s when Constantine really crystallized the whole thing and officialized it as the Roman Roman religion, man, there was a... We ended up worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel with a lot of practices that he never specified in his word. And... uh, Something that he is doing today is he is alerting the body of Messiah to this. He's, he's bringing this fact out loud and clear. He's, he's showing us the history. And, uh, and he's, he's, he's inviting us to worship him in the way that he specified in the Torah. Worship him in the way that Yeshua and uh, the early Messianic communities worshipped him. And uh, that does happen sometimes to look a little bit Jewish. But that's okay. I think that's okay. Yeshua looked a little bit Jewish. I think he's going to look a little bit Jewish when he comes back. I'm not scared of looking a little bit Jewish. So anyway, um, I'll give you one interesting example. This is something that atheists like to point out. There was this uh, cult in uh, the ancient world. It was very popular with Roman soldiers called Mithra. Um, It was kind of this mysterious cult cult it was especially that men belonged to they would, they would sacrifice bulls in caves and I think uh, they would do some special rituals by which they thought that they would gain immortality but uh, interestingly enough this cult even though it was quite popular in the Roman Empire uh, when Constantine came on the scene it all of a sudden just disappeared it just was gone it was like that, and uh, interestingly enough though all of these practices from Mithraism they did continue they didn't just disappear. They just kind of took on some new names, and uh, so atheists like to point this out and say that in some regards, our uh, our our traditional Christian practice is more like Mithraism than biblical faith. And I please please don't 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 like shoot me for this. You know, I'm just saying that this is something that atheists point out about Christianity. They say, you know, um, some, of these, some of these days, like, uh, you know, celebrating Christ's birth in conjunction with the winter solstice. I mean, he wasn't born then, right? Um, but this was something that was done in Mithraism. And, uh, man, how did that get into our faith? I mean, why not, why not celebrate Yeshua's birth in the fall, you know? Um, the day of trumpets when we celebrate the King. Yeshua came as the king. He was born as the king of the Jews. Uh, tabernacles or Sukkot, when he came to tabernacle among us, the word made flesh. I mean, wow, what, why don't we do those days to celebrate him, you know? Um, anyway, those are, those are some examples that I see. So, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that to be negative or judgmental. I'm just saying when we read our history, we realize, wow, you know, it's time to return to the ancient past. Um, that, that's a call I, I hear loud and clear. Um, there, there are some other... There there's some great books on that subject Alexander Hislop has a book he was a Protestant minister from the 1800's called The Two Babylons he details very clearly quite a few of our traditional church practices and how they didn't come from the scriptures and they didn't come from the Messianic Judaism of the first century they came from the ways of the nations. They came from practices that, that pagans worship their, their false gods. And uh, this is a Protestant minister we're talking about, right? So it's not like this is weird fringe stuff here. It's just history. So it's a great book. I'd recommend that book. Hmm. Okay. In, uh, in Deuteronomy 12 5 to 7, it talks about the place that Yahweh or God will choose where he will establish his name, where he will cause his name to live. Now, again, we can't go to the place on a regular basis, can we? To, uh, to make our offerings, to do our worship. But uh, this, is, this is cool because there is a level where it's very applicable to us. Uh, in Genesis, it talks about Jacob coming to the place. And he laid down at the place. And he had a dream at the place. And the dream was of this ladder between the heavens and the earth. And it was a picture of Mashiach, right? And then, of course, in John chapter 1, he, he, he clarifies that. Um, He says, yeah, you'll see the angels ascending and descending on me, the Son of Man. Um, Anyway, so uh, even in in traditional Judaism, this term, the place, is is understood to be a messianic title. When it talks about the place, it's talking about Mashiach. The Hebrew term for place is Makom. So, uh, he is Hamakom, he is the place. And uh, when we read this passage in that context... It's doable. It says, Seek the place which Yahweh your God will choose from all your tribes to establish His name there for His dwelling. Come there. Bring your, your burnt offerings and all your different kinds of offerings there. And verse 7, Eat before Yahweh your God and rejoice in all your undertakings. So uh, what we see here is, even though we can't go to Jerusalem, even though there's no temple standing, the ultimate place is the Messiah. And through Him, we can come to the throne. Through Him, we can enter the heavenly courts. Through Him, we can, we can offer our offerings. And uh, there's some verbs here. We can seek a Messiah. Uh, we can come to Messiah. And in, in His presence, as, as families, as a community of disciples, we can, we can feast. We can, we can do some eating together. And we can rejoice and uh, here's another practical application. It says, rejoice in all your undertakings in which Yahweh God has blessed you. A book that I have really enjoyed reading is Why Men Hate Going to Church by David Murrow. And one of the things he points out in that book is that men, even though men stereotypically are linear, men do have a certain cycle that they go in. And generally when it comes to work, you, uh, there are four stages. Stage one is Planning. You, uh, you look at what you have to do, uh, you uh, analyze the situation, you, you plan the work, and uh, then step two is you actually implement the plan. You, you, uh, you carry out the vision, you do the job, you do the work. Uh, those are the first two. And then number three is you celebrate. I remember doing that, even when I was installing high-speed internet. I mean, some days we would work 14 hours, we'd be driving all over the countryside, and we would get a lot of work done in a day and uh, the, the man who was working with me my employer Paul he was, he was a great guy one of the best employers I've ever had and I remember at the end of the day we'd both be so pumped because we were successful and because we got so much done eh? and we would just like we would be after the work we would be driving home and we'd just be celebrating like we'd be going back over the day and just laughing about the funny incidents and talking about problems that we solved and challenges that we overcame And uh, that's the idea of celebrating right and then, and then stage 4 according to David Murrow is rest that's smart too you know, after you accomplish the job and you celebrate it, you take some time to rest. Now, I am a recovering workaholic. And for us recovering workaholics, our tendency is to just do the first two stages. Plan work, plan work, plan work. And you don't really take the time to stop and celebrate or rest. And, uh, and thank God I, I'm growing in that area. <laughs> but uh, I, I love how it actually talks about this in the Word. Like he doesn't, he, he says like, you know, in, in all of the, your undertakings, your enterprises, the Hebrew word is like what you, what you send out your hand to, you know, in all of these things, take some time after to just come and rejoice in my presence. Like just celebrate with me. It tells me the master, he must be really into celebrating with us. You know, he invites us to do that. And, uh, and, and do some eating too. You know, have a big barbecue and invite your friends over and just celebrate. That kind of, that's the kind of the idea. I don't know about you, but like, this, is, this is the law we're talking about here, the Torah. Does that sound like bondage or legalism to you? Like, have a big barbecue, invite all your friends over. I mean, okay, please don't, don't, don't stone me for saying this either. But it even says, like, if it's too far, then cash in your produce and then bring the money to Jerusalem. And, like, buy the biggest steak you can find. And uh, get, a, get, a, get a six-pack. And, and really just have a great time with your family you know that, that's, that's essentially what it says that's essentially what the people of Israel would do and so you see that there's this this holy element to barbecues there's like getting the six pack and, and, and having it as a celebration of something is, is a sacred act in, in, the, uh, in the Torah world maybe we could almost draw that conclusion and of course there are limits too we remember Paul's words about, about that you know, being being filled with the Spirit, and uh, not being, fi- um, you know, the the, uh, the the inverse of that. So um, Deuteronomy twelve eight to nine, <laughs> this is a great description of us as as a movement. Sometimes I think he says, "Don't um, you shall not do at all what what you are doing here today. Every man doing what's right in his own eyes." <laughs> you know, sometimes when we look at the the movement. Uh, the Hebrew Roots Movement, Messianic Jewish Movement. There, there's quite a diversity of opinions in a lot of areas. Um, there is quite a diversity of practice, how people apply the Torah, how they live it out. And, uh, you know, some people, that really bugs some people. You know, they say, well, you know, look at everyone doing what's right in their own eyes. And, of course, the unspoken, the unspoken suggestion is, why aren't they all doing it like me? Because, of course, I have it all right, right? I'm doing it right and everyone should be doing it like me. Um, but, you know, I... I have, I have room in my worldview right now for diversity in terms of understandings of some things in the Torah, in terms of how we apply it, because I know that Yeshua is leading us. I know that it is His Ruach HaKodesh who is restoring us. And I know that we're headed in the right direction. And so I like to look at our future in that regard. But what this verse tells me here is the very next thing is the analysis. You haven't yet come to the resting place, the Menucha. And the inheritance, the Nachalah, which Yahweh your God is giving. So what that tells me is, for us as a movement, if we're all kind of doing what we think is right at this point, and we're just making the goal of it as best we can, that tells us we ha- tells me we haven't arrived yet as a Messianic Jewish community. Yeah, we're, we're, still in, we're still in the early stage here. So, you know, I think that's important to remember, that we are still in an early stage here. But Yeshua is leading His people. Um, the Father is restoring the body of Messiah and preparing the bride. And uh, Yeshua is the King. You know, in the, uh, the pre-monarchical analysis of Israel in the book of Judges, it says, everybody, Every man did what was right in his own eyes. There was no king in Israel. But there is a king in Israel today. And uh, Yeshua is leading us. And uh, that causes my heart to rejoice. And, you know, He is restoring, I believe... Uh, I don't know, you know, there's this apostolic thing that was around in the first couple of centuries. I believe that is something that he's restoring to the body. I believe it's something he's going to restore. I, I think as he restores that fully, um, there will be men like Yeshua's early emissaries who are really tight with him, who, who have that degree of scholarship and that, that, uh, that level of rapport with him and the spirit to be able to help people, guide people in halakha and how they apply the Torah and perhaps even bring some standardization um, I, I, I don't know if I've seen that yet on a, on a very high level. Like, some of those men, for instance, they would do stuff like raising people from the dead. When I see Messianic Jewish teachers beginning to raise people from the dead, I'm going to pay attention to that. I'm going to say, could this be Yeshua restoring that original apostolic office, that, that power that the early emissaries moved in? Um, this could be something to take seriously. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Okay In um, Deuteronomy 13, we hear the Almighty repeating himself. It's something that he said several chapters earlier. He said, in, um, actually, the, okay, in the Hebrew Bible, it's 13. In, in the Christian Bible verses, it's 12:32. "Whatever I command you, all that I command you, be careful to do. Don't add to, nor take away from it." And uh, this, is a great, this is a great challenge to us whether we be from a Christian background or a Jewish background, if we have a Christian background, we're going to have a tendency usually to take away from the Torah, to ignore the commandments that we don't really like or that make us uncomfortable or that uh, maybe look a little too Jewish or whatever. Uh, if we're from a Jewish background, often our tendency will be to add to the Torah, to uh, begin to read into it Jewish tradition and say this has, the, this has absolute halakhic authority in terms of the, the oral law. I, I, I've hit on that one before, so I'm not going to get into that so much. Um... Dum Dum Dum, Deuteronomy chapter 13, enter the false prophet. Talks about there are actually going to be prophets who are raised up in national Israel who do supernatural things, like really real eye-catching phenomena. And it's it's gonna be real. Uh, but they're, they're gonna be false prophets. They're actually going to be designed to take you away. From the Holy One. And uh, it's prophesied right here that it's going to happen. This this is a matter of concern for me. Because very often in the body of Christ, people get all, uh, they get all like wowed by signs and wonders. Like, it's like a big buzzword. Signs and wonders. If there are signs and wonders, then you go running after it. And very often we don't stop to say, well, what's this person teaching? Uh... How is this person's lifestyle? Are they actually living a godly lifestyle? How is he treating his wife? Things like this. And uh, the result often is you have these big phenomenal prophets or spiritual charismatic types and then they crash. And they bring so much disgrace to the name of Messiah and to the body of Messiah. And uh, it says here that these guys are from Yahweh. Yahweh's actually bringing them on the scene and it's a reason. He says in verse 3, He's testing you to see if you love Him with all your heart and with all your soul. So, actually, I really appreciate the Hebrew there. It doesn't say to see if you love Him. It says to see if you are His lover. A wholehearted lover. You're loving Him with all your life. So that tells me something. You know, it isn't, it isn't even so much a matter of doctrinal purity that's going to safeguard us from false prophets what it says here is when we are his lovers when we are wholeheartedly loving him and engaging with him then that will be our primary safeguard against the bad guys that uh, come our way and uh, right after that oh, it describes these six, these six areas in which we can relate to him extremely relational and I want to, I want to look at each one of these for a moment in uh, Deuteronomy 13 verse 4 and because uh, with each one of these it, it almost looks like a, a series of seasons in our walk with the master and I can see these reflected especially in uh, the book of John and I wanted to look at those for a second here the first thing it says is to follow him and this reminds me of John chapter 1 where the disciples first caught a sniff of the master they were Yochanan's uh, disciples prior to that. And uh, they began kind of following him at a distance. And they were like, Rabbi, uh, where, where are you staying tonight? And he said, well, come and see. So to me, I see that as the first step. You know, when you first, when you first get, that, get that sniff of the master, and you begin kind of wanting to get around him in closer physical proximity, closer spiritual proximity. Then, uh, then number two, it says to, to fear him, to be in awe of him, to respect him. Uh, we, see that in Yohan, we see this in Yochanan chapters two to four. Uh, he did several miracles, turning the water to wine, um, healing the boy. I think that's at the end of, of, of John chapter 4, simply by a spoken word. And what was the result? It says, like, his disciples came to believe in him through that. Their, their respect for him um, shot through the roof. They, they began to be in awe of the rabbi. And uh, that's also true for us. Uh, number three, keep his commands. Uh, do the stuff he says. Uh, you know, you 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 follow him. You you gain respect for him, and then you begin to obey him. And uh, we see this in the many many missions, the small assignments that Yeshua would send his disciples out in two by two. They were learning to do the mitzvot, weren't they? He gave them these these uh, these trial runs. Uh, and then number four, listen to his voice. Uh, what, what I see here is that. You know, after coming into that close proximity with Him, uh, developing a respect for Him, learning to obey Him and keep His commands, you'll begin to uh, experiencing this close personal rapport with Him that in the Torah is called listening to His voice. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of people who today who say, I just wish I could hear the voice of God. I just I wish I had that rapport with Him, but He just seems so distant. And uh, for people like that, what, what I would suggest is focus on those first three steps. And, the other, and that close personal rapport will come Develop a reverence for him Learn to worship him in, in, in that holy fear um, Just, you know, get in the word And try and kind of just get in close You know, close proximity to him And, you know, that, that, that rapport is going to develop Where you actually hear his voice The number five, serving him uh, Quite often, we put this one first uh, People... Fall for, into the trap of serving God, but not walking closely with Him, doing stuff for Him instead of doing stuff with him. Uh, but what we see here is that developing that that tight relationship with Him always precedes serving him, and uh, then the last one is uh, the most beautiful, and I think it 's more like the height. Of our walk with the Master, clinging to Him, being attached to Him, cleaving to Him—all of these uh, these verbs come from the Hebrew term. There, it's the same one that expresses the marital relationship that Adam and Chava had, and uh, we, we this is reminiscent of something that Paul wrote also in 1 Corinthians six. He said that that he who joins himself to the Master is one spirit with Him, and so we see that this is something that in the Torah that we're invited to come into that that, that, uh, that place where we can just let our spirits like merge with the Messiah's spirit where we can become one with him internally where his life just flows through us and uh, wow, this is the Torah we're talking about here this stuff is in the Torah don't you love that? and then of course we see, the, we see it becoming so real um, through our faith in Yeshua in our experience of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit in um, our going to be closing here pretty soon. 13.5, uh, it says who he is. Now, this is something that Paul specified numerous times. He said, guys, there are many lords out there. There are many gods. Even though we know, we know they're not real gods. But there's only one true God. And, uh, you know, so you have, you have this prophet, this person who is uh, doing supernatural stuff and really wowing the crowds. Maybe he's even on the media or whatever. Um is he, is he seducing you to follow another God? And I'll give you a couple of rules, of rules of thumb for how you can know if it's another God or not. It says right here in verse 5. To seduce you from the... Where is it here? Um, that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has counseled rebellion against Yahweh your God who brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. So there are two things that jump out here Firstly The true God is the God Who historically brought Israel Out of Egypt He is the God of Passover And I think on a broader level We could say He is the God who gave the Torah To his people Israel This is who he is He, he uh, The Torah defines him And if there are people who come And they have this message Where they talk about the Lord Or even they talk about Adonai or Yahweh Or whatever But like there's not this foundational element of Torah. Maybe that's when our, our radar our, should start beeping. When the red lights should start flashing. where we should start getting warning signals. Maybe this isn't. Maybe this is another God we're talking about here. And what's the other thing here? Who set you free. Who brought you out of, uh, out of slavery. So you know if, if there's some spiritual influence or some message or whatever. And you find that it's not bringing the freedom of Messiah in your life. It's not life-giving. It isn't bringing that joy. That's another. That's another way you can tell if it's from Him or not. You know, um, I don't know why it is, but you know, when people like bring weird messages and and false stuff or cults or whatever, it always ends up with people like controlled. Somebody, everybody's under somebody's thumb, and they all get. It just gets really weird, eh? So just. I, I have developed a healthy love for the freedom we have in Messiah, for the joy that we have in His Spirit. And often, you know, as soon as I begin to feel that diminish, then I'm, I'm, I stop and I say, what's wrong here? Maybe there's something wrong here. So those are, those are a couple of practical rules of thumb that, that I see. Um, dietary Guidelines in Deuteronomy 14 He already listed them in Leviticus I guess they're important enough That he thought he would list them all again for us Or maybe it's because the next generation And their parents didn't teach them How to eat kosher or something I don't know But he saw it necessary to do it again But uh, something that I just want to point out about that Is how he prefaces this chapter He begins by saying This is who you are This is your relationship with me He says You are my sons You are my sons. You are my daughters you are, you are holy, Kadosh. Um, you're you're You're, you're, you're a, like a treasured possession of mine. You're special. That's how he begins this chapter. And then he says, So eat like it. Right? Like, let, let who you are be expressed in every area of your lives. Even your diet. Um, let your diet be an expression of your holiness. Of the fact that you are special to me. Uh, 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 let it be a declaration that I am your father. That, that's the idea behind the food laws. So... Um, we read that in Romans 7 too. Paul Paul said, the mitzvah, the commandment, is for our good. So you know this dietary stuff? It's for our good. It's for our health. Some people will say, oh, but that's bondage, and we're free from all that now. What I suggest is, that is, oh man, that's extremely inconsistent and irrational. You know, I mean, like, it's, it, it's not good to be free from what's healthy for you. <laughs> I want to be in bondage to what's good and healthy for me. <laughs> you know, I'll give you an example. Like my my marriage covenant with Genevieve. It's the best thing that ever happened to me. It's healthy for me, right? To to like to say, oh well that's bondage. You know, the, the marriage bond? That's bondage. Really, you should want to be free from that. That's not a freedom that I want. <laughs> right? So that's that's the idea behind that. Yeah, right, eh? Free to eat garbage. <laughs> yeah, right on. That's a great freedom. I mean, yeah, like yeah, I hear you. Um, Fourteen twenty one is interesting because it says, uh, "Okay, so you know, there's this idea that the whole Torah is for the native born and for the stranger. Um, therefore, the 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 conclusion sometimes is drawn. Therefore, the whole Torah is for it, all believers, whether they're, from, they're Jewish or Gentile. They're all obligated to keep the whole law, right? Um, I guess that's called the one law theology quite often. Uh, First fruits is slightly changed." Their, uh, their direction in the last year or two with their divine invitation theology, which they're, I think they're in the process of re- re-terming Acts 15 theology. Anyway, um, there's, just, there's, a, there's a verse here that is inconsistent with the one-law position. It says: Don't eat anything which dies of itself. You can give it to the gear, like the, the alien, the stranger who is in your town, so that he may eat it, or sell it to a foreigner. For you are a holy people to Yahweh your God. So what we see here anyway, is there's at least one commandment where it's applied to the people of Israel, the ethnic people of Israel, in a different way. And it applies only to them, and not to the gear, not to the stranger who moves in, not to the the proselyte or convert to Judaism, um, however you, you choose to look at that. So anyway, that's just a verse that maybe we can factor into our thoughts. I don't have a... I'm not going to build a massive theology on that one. Um... Yeah, and then of course Deuteronomy 16, we'll finish with that. It's the three pilgrimage festivals, where ideally all of the males go up to Jerusalem. And you know, if we can't, at least we can do it here, can't we? And uh, it has a couple highlights. One of the things it says is, you know, when you come to him, don't come empty-handed. Literally in Hebrew, it just says, don't come re-come don't come empty. Uh, come, come with an offering. And I think that's a great that's a great invitation for us every Shabbat and on the biblical festivals. You know, um, if we're feeling empty before we come to congregation, he wants to fill you with the Holy Spirit. Let him fill you. Ask him to fill you. And I I guarantee you that's a prayer that that he delights to answer. And uh, some of these things, the one other one that I just think, wow. You know, if we as the body of Christ on the whole, if if we began doing these festivals, it would revolutionize the way we express our faith, the way we look to the world. The way we communicate the gospel to the Jewish people. I'll give you one small example. And this is a vision that I have for the whole body of Christ. I believe that he's going to restore us to this. It says about uh, Passover and unleavened bread. Uh, Don't eat unleavened bread. Oh, no, sorry. Yeah, don't eat unleavened bread with the Passover. Seven days, eat it with unleavened bread, the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste. Why? So that you may remember... All the days of your life, the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. So just, just picture for a moment all believers around the world, the whole body of Messiah from Jewish and Gentile backgrounds during Passover every year, eating only unleavened bread for that solid week in the springtime. Why? To remember that they are part of historic, historical Israel, which the God of Israel brought out of Egypt. You know, when every one of us as believers say, I was there in Egypt. He brought me out of Egypt. I am part of Israel that received the Torah at Mount Sinai. Then we are going to, that will be one great step for believing kind. Thank you for joining us in this message. I pray that it's been an inspiration to you and your discipleship to Yeshua the Messiah. Crown Messiah is a relatively small congregation with a massive mission. We're not just making disciples and teaching the Word of God here in our city. We're also doing that internationally through vehicles such as the internet. It is our joy to offer you these messages for free at absolutely no charge. At the same time, we do have ongoing overhead expenses. It costs us something to produce these teachings and get them out to you. And we would appreciate it if you would, in turn, support our work in a practical way. Help us cover some of our basic expenses. You can do that by going to our website, crownofmessiah.com, and going to the donate page where you can make a one-time donation or you can set up a monthly automated donation. I'm reminded of the words of Yeshua's Apostle Paul. In Galatians chapter 6 he said, Let the one who is taught the word share everything good with his teacher. So if you're being taught the word by us, we would appreciate it if you would take the words of Yeshua's Apostle seriously and make some type of return for the blessing that we are giving you for free. That way we'll all be in it together and we will be a team accomplishing the mission that Yeshua has given us, and you will go from only being a receiver to also being a giver. If you're like most people, finances are tight. We understand that. Finances are tight for us too. That's why we need people like you to come alongside us and to back us in the work that Yeshua has called us to do. Thank you so much for making that donation at crownamessiah.com, and thank you for becoming a team member with us. We appreciate it.